your listeners are going to be like, wait, do they ever have anyone else? Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate drone living in Eastern Europe, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian turned freelance book indexer and proofreader, also working on a novel while raising two boys with my husband and making PB&Js by the dozen. Hi, for this, our last summer episode, before our regular season starts up again in September, we interviewed K.J. Delantonia, the author of the very soon-to-be-released book, How to Be a Happier Parent. How to Be a Happier Parent comes out on Tuesday, August 21st. That is in one week if you are listening to this as it comes out. So make sure you pre-order at your local bookseller. K.J. has some really cool pre-order bonuses that are available. K.J. is a parent, the former New York Times reporter and former editor of the New York Times Motherlode blog, and was the contributing editor of the New York Times Well Family section until last year. Our listeners are probably most familiar with KJ as the co-host of the wonderful Hashtag Am Writing podcast that she shares with Jess Leahy. KJ talked to us about how to hold on to your writer self even when little humans need something from you. Her tips aren't just for parents either. There's a lot that non-parents can also learn. She also talks about charting a path toward being a writer, making the transition from nonfiction to fiction, and the value of writing friendships. You can find her and Jessica Leahy at their podcast, Hashtag Am Writing, on iTunes or on Audioboom. And you can find KJ at kjdelantonia.com. And we hope you enjoy the interview as much as we did. So a lot of our listeners, we talk about having writing with a day job, and a lot of our listeners have day job, day jobs, but a lot of them also are parents, which is not always recognized as a day job, but it is definitely a day job. It's a day. It's a night job. It's a day job. It's an all the time (laughs) job. And right now it is summer break and lots of people are trying, including me, are trying to deal with kids at home and still getting their things done. And so I don't know if you wanted to start with a little bit of your background and how that how that fits in. Oh, yeah, this time of year, I mean, the whole transitions, transitioning out of school, transitioning back into school. It's like, the minute you get any kind of routine set, it just all throws its zap. Yeah, there's... (laughs) It's crazy. You have to learn to write without a receipt. So I have gone from writing as a, you know, as a side hustle while parenting was my day job to part-time writing, part-time parenting to full-time job that was writing, which is when I spent my years at the New York Times. And uh, although I didn't have to leave the house for it most of the time, uh, but it was a full-time job. So it was this sort of very weird uh, needing to put in eight or nine hours a day, but it didn't necessarily matter which eight or nine hours, which sometimes worked well and sometimes was really ugly. And now I'm totally, without a doubt, a full-time writer, but I'm a full-time writer for myself. So that's like got its own complications. I, I put in the time because I'm, I've become really disciplined about putting in the time, but I don't have to answer to anyone. So it took me a little while to segue back into that. So that's sort of my, I've, I've, I've been on all the, all the fronts. So one of the things that I know a lot of people, well, okay, I'm going to say a lot of people, but when I say that, I really mean me. Uh, That is why, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's like, that's the side benefit to being the host, right? Exactly struggle with is the topic of your forthcoming book, which is how to be a happier parent. And when you talk about having to fit in your eight or nine hours of work into a day that isn't structured or has an unconventional structure. And I remember on one of your podcast episodes, you were talking about feeling frazzled because you had orthodontist appointments and you had these other things and things were just taking up your days that weren't things you wanted to do and you still had to do the things you wanted and needed to do. How do you find... I don't know if equanimity is really the right word, but how, how do you how do you deal with that? Well, so, you know, when you when you have a when you have the baby and, and there you are and you have this sort of 10 pound lump of, of flour that <laughs> screams and you have to carry it around all the time. Or if you put it down, you know, somebody pretty much has to watch it or at least you have to put it in a really suitable cage and then you're not allowed to leave the house, even though it's in a cage and it can't move. So your whole life, at least temporarily, really has to revolve around 
the bag of flour, right? Which is, you know, your adorable, much loved baby that you're supposed to have fallen in love with. And maybe you have, and maybe you haven't. So there's this sort of interval when that has to come first, if only because the idea that something other than your own desires has to come first, like sort of takes over. And then you get to this phase where what you have are small children, which while they're not exactly more flexible, they're, they're sort of more easily put into like you can make them watch TV or you can find them some daycare or you could get them a babysitter. You can trade them off with a friend. You've sort of got more options, but you've, you've come out of this period when the kid had to come first. And what you have, what I think is really important to sort of regaining your equanimity and coming to a place of resuming your real life only now with kids, which you have to do is you have to, you have to stop putting them first. It's funny because their safety has to be like, you can't, they get older and then you can just leave them at home. But for a long time, you, you know, you're sort of, on the one hand, your number one thing has to be, well, where's the kid and who is watching the kid and who is picking up the kid? But it's not really your number one thing. Your number one thing is like the stuff that you are uniquely able to do. Like if you're working, it's it's that job and earning that money and providing the shelter and providing the food. If you're taking care of the kids, but you're also writing, then your number one thing is to make you a functional adult who both can take care of those kids and be something that like they want to grow up into. That's sort of a really long-winded answer, but I, I was just thinking about recently that that transition and there's that baby thing. And then, then you really need to come back to, oh, no, wait, this is actually, it's still about me because it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a little crazy because we're supposed to say, well, it's not all about you, but it's allowed to be about you. And I think that's where a lot of, parenting gets challenging right now because there are so many things that we can do for our kids. And if parenting is, as you said, your day job, sometimes it feels like then you should be doing all those things, but it's not necessarily, it's probably not good for them. And it's probably not good for you if everything's just revolving around what they need and want. Now, revolving around keeping them fed, housed and clothed, that's kind of a different question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's something that, so my day job is I write the indexes for the backs of nonfiction books. And so sometimes I have work and sometimes I don't. And in those in-between times, besides catching up on laundry and sleep and administrative things, sometimes I have time where I can just sit and read a book in the afternoon. And I have to say, I feel really guilty doing that. No, but, don't feel guilty. <laughs> well, and I know. And, and so I was a public librarian before that. And I know, and I always just remind myself, I am modeling literacy and I'm modeling reading for fun. And my, you know, this is how your kids learn to be readers for themselves, right? Is if they see their parents. And I think, right. I think that's a big key to all of it is it's not just about reading that your kids learn when they watch you do it. It's everything that you do. Right. And I mean, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's an over discussed topic and yet it can't be said enough that I, I don't know about your mother, but I know that my mother did not feel guilty about reading during the day while I was doing something else, no matter how old I was. My mother was also going to college herself and, and getting herself out into the workforce, but uh, she read plenty and it did not worry her that she was not somehow mentally engaging me instead of spending some time with Jackie Collins or whatever. Yeah, Sydney Sheldon. I, Yes, exactly. And this is, I mean, you know, things have changed around us as parents. Sort of the world has moved underneath us as as we grew as we grew up and became the parents. For one thing, parenting is like this huge industry mm, yeah. now. You know, when you look at, I like to talk to people about their kids' sports and activities, kind of one of my favorite topics, because that's one area where you can really see a progression of, Let's send the kids all out to play baseball in, you know, the the side lot. And that's about 1940. And somewhere in the middle of the 40s, someone said, hey, you know, if we organize those kids into a league, someone might pay us. Mm. And that was how that began. And you can watch it go on with baseball. And you can see those changes in every single sport and activity available for kids. What, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't really do it in an organized way until you were nine and you did for like six weeks during the spring and your dad coached. Now it's, you know, three practices a week and two games on the weekend and there are away games and oh my gosh, 
all the other kids are, are doing a skills clinic on Wednesday. Can I go to the skills clinic? Hey, the people who run the skills clinic have a summer camp. Can I go to the summer camp? I mean, it, it's we, the world has gamed us up. So some of that feeling of guilt comes from the fact that there's like a ton of it feels like there's a ton of possibility. And then, of course, some of it feels like if I don't do everything for these kids and everyone else does everything for those kids, then my kids will be behind. And I think a really important question to ask yourself sort of is when my kid is my age and has these kids and I'm talking to them on the phone, am I going to want them to say, well, you know, my whole day was taken up with soccer or am I going to want them to talk to me about the latest book? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And so do you think that's sort of the, it sounds like, I mean, again, I'm on the outside of this whole thing, but it sounds like a kind of arms race that sounds really terrifying when you put it, <laughs> it in is. those stark terms that you, <laughs> that but it's not like, it's not like, um, it's not our faults. You know, people sort of take this bad rap because we're helicopter parenting and we're all trying to raise our kids and make them be successful and get them into Harvard or whatever. It doesn't all come from the inside. A lot of it comes from the outside and these these pressures that you don't think about. You know, you just sort of think, well, when I was little, I went to ballet class. And, you know, now the the ballet class comes with a dance core and if your kid's not in the dance core for an extra 80 bucks and an extra hour a week then they can't have the sweatshirt and if they can't have the sweatshirt uh they can't be in the concert it's yeah yeah no I don't mean that it's scary like it's terrifying I'm not terrified of you guys I mean it sounds like scary (laughs) to me (laughs) it sounds scary to me just to live in that world where there's those pressures because it's not just like I mean, I've lived in London and, you know, trying to decide which theater thing you're going to go to or whatever. You can also have that, right? It's kind of arms race of all the different billions of choices that you can have. But you also have this additional... You've eaten this yet. Yeah. But then now it's like also these people are dependent on you. And if you get it wrong, like something will be wrong with them. You know, there's this emotional element. Like if I don't see that play, whatever, I'm just not as cool as my friend. But that doesn't matter in that same way. So... Uh, Yeah, I just think, so in in your opinion, or I guess like just about the industry and how that's developed, is that just a lot about kind of turning it into an industry, basically, and then using your kids to sell that industry back to you? Yeah, you know, I don't, it's not like I, I think some people were really into baseball or whatever, and they really thought this would be glorious for a few kids. It's not like someone sort of, sometimes it feels like, you know, somebody set out to make hockey as, as difficult as possible. But the truth is that, I don't know. People had their own passions and they took them to the natural conclusion and now they run these passionate things. And I don't know, I think it's just, it's easy to get caught up in it. And actually, oddly enough, we, you know, we have, we have a fair amount of leisure time. It's not necessarily popular to say because a lot of your leisure time is necessarily spent answering emails from clients or whatever that may or may not be really important. But you know, we don't have to, we don't have to plow the fields to get our, our dinners on the table. And sort of, so there's this sort of question of, well, what are you, what are you doing? And I don't know, sometimes it sort of feels easiest to do the thing that pops up, whether it's take a kid to soccer or I think, I think we're not accustomed to looking at it from a perspective of, well, what would make me, you know, once you have kids, you feels wrong to think, well, what would make me happiest this Saturday? But that's mm, not wrong. Yeah. It's still it's still your, you know, it's it's how you should think. It's like, well, what do I need to get done so that, you know, the world continues to spin? But after that, let's make me a, a pleasant person to be around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I have to say that sometimes it's almost like a trap, all the sports things and the activities and the summer camps and the things, because on the one hand, they're really appealing for a working or writing parent because it's like, oh, this is going to buy me some time, right? If I yes. send my kids yes. to soccer camp for a week, then, you know, who cares that they're five and eight and really have no business doing six hours of nonstop sports for a week physically. But, you know, that that will get them out of out of the way and I can do the things I right. need to do. So when they're around, it's, you know, our time together is quality time. But on the other hand, like my mom was a teacher and so she was around in the summers, but I, I mean, I know I saw her, someone had to take me to the library and, you know, someone made my lunch, but I don't remember spending a lot of time with her or even wanting to as much as I love her. And <laughs> what's wrong with doing that yeah. with my kids, right? Why can't they go play out? I mean, and they do. But so what I was saying about like, you know, so we, we want to do 
the sports things on the one hand, because it does give us, I don't really care what my kids are doing if they're in theater camp or steam kids. For me, it's not necessarily about the activity itself. It's just the fact that they are in an activity that I am not in charge of, right. which buys me some time. But at the same time, I do need to remember, like we're, so we're moving and, or by the time this is, is airs, we will have moved. And so we missed all the summer camp signups. So we're kind of on our own for the summer. Well, it depends on where you go. Well, yeah, but I mean, you might, you know, so that's okay though. Like it's like where I am, I could still, you could still sign up for stuff. Yeah. And we probably could, but I don't know if I'm going to, because I think you can make it work and let them be on their own and do things uh, without me having to be the cruise director. So I guess a good question for you then is how practically do you make this work and suggestions for other people? Oh, this is a great question. So, you know, you can totally, especially when you're thinking summer or we're thinking weekends or we're thinking after school, you can block off time even when the kids are young and be like, I'm going to spend the next, I mean, the littler they are, the smaller your interval might be. But, you know, I'm going to spend the next 45 minutes doing this and you're not going to knock, you're going to let me do this. And realistically, you have to, if you stick with it, it works. I remember, so last, last summer I spent, I have, I have photographic and video evidence that I spent the first, I think three days of the summer, literally with a child underneath me at all times moaning, I'm bored. <laughs> what should I, I don't know what to do. Okay, I'm not, then I would, I would turn her on her with my mother's favorite expression. I would say only boring people are bored. And then she would get very angry, um, which just was always my reaction to that. And then she would say, but I just don't, but what can I do? And I would say, well, if I tell you, you won't like, I can't list the things because if I, if I list things, then everything I list, you're not going to do. So you just have to figure something out. Like, I can't be like, go draw, go outside, go, you know, because all of those are going to get, no, I don't want to. So, and I had to, man, it was, it was a miserable three days. (laughs) Uh, But eventually I got more boring, like, then the possibility of going and finding one of the men. I mean, we, there's lots to do, or maybe there's not, but you know, you didn't want to be at school last week. So go figure something out. So I think that one of the answers to that is that you just have to stick with it and recognize that it's not going to be like this instant suddenly after school, my, you know, I, I put out some snacks or my, I tell my kids to go get a snack and they take care of themselves until five. And I've got still got that two hours. It's going to be, no, really. No, really. I meant it. Yeah, no, I'm working. Go away. I'm working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be sort of, <laughs> it's like anything. You have to be super consistent with it. But if you are, they can learn. It's, it's, I, I have seen many writers manage to convince their kids to leave them, you know, not knock on their door unless they're bleeding for periods of uh, up to three or four hours. You just have to outbore them, sounds like. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, yeah. You really have to stick it out. Like you have to not give in and get up and go make them a sandwich or whatever. You have to be like, no, you can really, you can make a sandwich. No, I swear you can make a sandwich. I've seen you make a sandwich. Yeah. No, you can find the bread. I know you can find the bread. Like you really have to hold out because they are just. Once once you start watching, you realize like, I, I they don't do it consciously. I know they can don't, but it's like, will this get her? Yeah. How about this? Ooh, okay, well, maybe this. It's just—it's really funny, but oh, it's painful. Yeah. Well, and I'll do things like I'll set a timer and say, you know, I need this 15 minutes to finish these emails or this thing that I'm doing, and I will deal with you when the timer goes off, but not before. And if they interrupt me, then I reset the timer. Now, when it comes that. to concentrated stuff, I know that I really find it a lot easier to sort of know that nobody's going to pull the I need help me find the bread business. So um, my kids are bigger now. And basically, if I'll let them for- play Fortnite, I don't have to hear them for them for I, I don't know how long it would go. I haven't checked. <laughs> I'm a little scared. <laughs> but when they were littler, I would definitely, you know, it was like that was the, the play date. And you drop them off and you go sit somewhere like the, the closest possible place where you can turn your laptop on. And, and crank out that concentrated work. Just, you know, knowing that it's a temporary problem. They do get to the point where they can, can fend for themselves. The point is to keep yourself like in the game while that's happening. Yeah. Well, so how do you do that? Million dollar question. Yeah, the million dollar <laughs> question. Well, for me, 
having the job and before that having deadlines, having a commitment to someone who really did not care whether, you know, there was an orthodontist appointment at, that helped me to get in the habit hmm. of, of getting the work done. So I feel like there's, you know, it's sort of a, a question of what works for you. So number one is just to decide that you're going to, you're going to do something besides make sandwiches all day. Uh, that sounds so dismissive. It's not really how I, <laughs> I you know, but you, it's just, you're going to, yeah, it's hard. I mean, you really have to be determined, right? You know that when your kids are little, they can outweigh you and they can out, out persist you. And they, you, you have to really just be like, you know, I am still a writer or I, and I'm not going to stop for you, cute and lovable as you are. I got to, I got to do this. Right. Cause it, well, and it, it's so easy to just slide into, well, it's that whole, you know, they're urgent, but they're not emergencies. Yes. And right. it's so easy to just be like, oh no, they need something I'm going to. It's such a fantastic procrastination technique because it's really one that allows you not to feel guilty because you're doing what you're right. supposed to be doing, which is nurturing this thing, this young formless thing in there. And, and yeah, so you, it's, it's, um, it's, an important thing, like you, you can always feel good about deciding to do something for your kids instead of doing your writing at the moment when you do it, but you might not feel good later. So finding a way to sort of reach for that later self who looks back and is like, you know, if we, if we'd done 500 words a day by the end of a year, we'd have a lot of words. Yeah. 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 So yeah. finding your way to that person. And I, I've so having deadlines that that were external helped. I don't really need an external deadline to like. I can. I don't actually don't like to be told what to do, and in some ways, I don't like <laughs> external deadlines. But at the time, it helped me to remember that there were things that were more important than the immediate nurturing of the of the little minds. So I would think that for you, you know, when you're when you have a book to index, that's got to get done. And sure, I mean, the, the kids' needs are every bit as important then as they are when you're doing your own writing, but you prioritize the indexing over, you know, whatever they're sort of banging on the door and, and asking you for. Uh, so then you have to sort of transfer that to the work that you truly want to get done. And somehow you just have to find a way to declare that as important as anything else. And I, that really varies for people. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so that is a good I'm sitting here, I'm looking at your 10 mantras for happier parents. And that is number eight, which is decide what to do, then do it. And I was just wondering, right, like, that that's just kind of a good segue to ask you a little bit about the book itself, and how you think it applies for our listeners. And just kind of tell us a little bit about how to be a happier parent. Well, that was a, so we've, we've that was really a really big jump. Sorry. That was, that's okay. <laughs> No, but we've already been talking about it because happier parents tend to be parents who put family and life at the top of the list, but not necessarily your kids' individual needs. So like when you're looking at something like what's for dinner or where you're going on vacation, it takes into account what everybody would like to do. You don't go to Disney World and eat chicken nuggets every single time, right? Oh God. So... Oh my God. <laughs> I like Disney World. I also like chicken nuggets, but not, yeah, not, um, not as a, a constant thing. So it's really important to recognize that it's not the kids' immediate needs that necessarily should take precedence over everything else. So, I mean, it's sort of how to be a happier parent. Really, the, the story of how to be a happier parent is that I was a writer for the New York Times, and I was writing and editing the parenting section. So I was both writing and editing little, you know, personal stories about people who were transitioning, giving up the minivan and policy stories about why summer vacation is such a terribly expensive time of year for all of us and just sort of the gamut. And what I kept seeing consistently was that the parents who were writing for me and the parents that I was interviewing for things, and then also me, I didn't have kids because I thought it would be a really hard job and I was, you know, clamoring, just, you know, anxious to do some more work. <laughs> I had kids because I thought that, you know, creating a family would 
be a, well, making your own family, making your own refuge. Like, you know, I thought it would be, I thought it would be fun. I thought it would be great. I thought it, not every minute, you know, it's not like I didn't know there were going to be diapers involved, but I just didn't expect it to just feel every day. Like, oh, geez, you know, man, again, you want dinner again? We just had dinner yesterday. I swear. So I started to just look at what are these individual areas of the day? Like, what's hard about mornings? What's hard about sports and activities? What's hard about getting, you know, kids and homework? And then figuring out, well, all right, what are those things can we do something about? Like, I think we, we, Mm -hmm. the conversation about, that we were having earlier about, you know, how parenting has changed and how sports and activities have changed and how our attitudes have changed. Some of that isn't stuff we can fix, but like, what can we do differently in different areas of life to, to make it, to make it better? So that's, that's what's in the book. It's like, here's 20 strategies for making meals, not the worst moment of your day. And it's kind of funny because the worst moment of the day is different for, it's different for everybody. So it was fun to write. I was like, this is so weird because it's like we're talking about the parenting piece of it and we're talking about the writing piece of it. I'm having a hard time meshing them in my conversation. That's okay. Yeah, I have so many meta questions like that. And it's I've been trying to think how I'm going to formulate them. And I don't think I've come up with a good way. So we'll just see what happens. But uh, is there something that you learned about how to be a happier parent and like basically writing is also sort of about projecting yourself into the world, which is sounds like is one of the important components of being a happier parent. Is there something that you learned from that that you immediately kind of took into how you were balancing writing and parenting in your life? Yeah. So one of the big meta lessons that both applies for parents and for not being a parent, like this is just something about me that changed. So I was doing a different interview at some point recently. And they were like, well, you sound like you've always been a pretty happy person. And I thought about that. And I was like, no, no, actually, if we go back in time and ask my mom, I was the whiniest. I mean, like, I was a really cranky, unpleasant child. I just was like, we joke about this about one of my kids. It's not like my cup was not half empty. I didn't even have a cup. Nobody gave me a cup. And if, if you did, then it's not the right color and like it's not big enough. And I, I was really not, not pleasant. And uh, you know, some of, growing up, you sort of learn that you need to hide that piece of yourself <laughs> if you want to have friends um, and a job and a life. And I still feel like I'm teaching my children to hide that piece of themselves. But there just there came this moment and it was in the course of is somewhere in the course of researching the book and also just researching life in general when i realized that that attitude didn't make me happy like i was sort of approaching everything with this really negative i only remember the bad parts everything happens to me mindset and the only person that could fix that was you know sitting here and in, in this chair talking to you guys And so I started trying to figure out, well, how can I just, how can I talk to myself differently about this? And this is kind of a very writer-y way because we're all telling ourselves stories all the time, right? About what's happening in our day. And is your, you know, is today's story the story of how I, you know, I spent the first two hours of the day at the dentist and then I couldn't get back to the school easily because there was road work and I had to go around on the highway and, and ordered you know, tried to order breakfast for the three kids who went to the dentist and the one kid didn't give me her order and she didn't get her breakfast and then she was mad and she screwed. So my whole day is screwed up because I, you know, is that the story or, or is it, the, is it, you know, the, all those things happened and I did not yell. Yeah. <laughs> I, I triumphed because I managed, and this is really hard for me, like I managed not to, to, break down and to scream at anyone or blame anyone else for what happened. And, you know, I got through it. So learning to tell myself different stories about our family, about who I was and, and who the kids were and what we were doing together, that has helped enormously. And I think that's just a, it's just a mindset question. Like it, it just has to do with how you look at life. And I guess the important thing that I learned is that that's actually changeable. I I really didn't think I could think differently. And it's only in really reflecting on how much I have changed that I've realized, wow, I I don't do that anymore so much. 
And I don't catast- catastrophize mm. as much. Mm-hmm. You know, that thing that you do where, like, you know, wait, I, I, haven't, I haven't heard from my kid in, in half an hour, and I sent him down the road, and he's probably dead because somebody ran over him. And I just, right, right. Uh, you know, my mind used to spiral. And that's lots of people's minds spiral that way. It turns yeah. out it was not just me. And you can actually learn to stop as much nicer when you stop. Yeah, you really can. You can just be like, okay, I'm doing that thing. And I'm. there's a great quote that's, I've forgotten who it is, Montaigne. I'm not terribly literate in my <laughs> literate references. Sorry. Um, I, I have suffered, I've suffered a million things in my lifetime, most of which never happened. Yeah, yeah. Why do we do that to ourselves? Yeah. Thank you, brain. Yeah. You know? So it sounds like, I mean, how to be a happier parent is really how to be a happier person who happens to be a parent. It's how to be a happier person plus tips for if you have all these small people that you have to feed and get out of the house on time. And, without, and how to be a happier parent yeah. with, or person without anybody dying. <laughs> there, yeah. 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 There's lots of how to be a happier person in there. But in terms of tips, most of them tend to apply to parenting things. Yeah. To, to parenting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a specific set of challenges, and I think it's good to make the tips concrete because you don't really have time to think of them for yourself, I think, if you're in the parenting situation. Well, it's easier to make concrete changes. People are better about saying, you know, I'm going to try planning every meal for a month and see if that makes me happier than they are about, well, I'm going to change my whole mindset. The mindset (laughs) is important, and it's probably the most important, but sometimes it takes making those little day-to-day changes and then recognizing that they actually are helping and that that can sort of move you towards being able to make the larger changes when you feel less pressured by the daily grind. Yeah, and that's my favorite theme on this podcast that we've sort of randomly uncovered is that I think becoming a writer is not about like, obviously, you can sit in your house and think I really wish I was a writer, but I was boring day job or whatever it is, like my really intense day job is keeping me from becoming a writer. Or you can start writing with the little concrete steps. And then gradually that opens up a space where you can kind of have a bigger conversation with yourself about how you become a writer, rather than kind of beating yourself up about the big stuff. Right. I mean, it's it feels Sometimes once you're sort of in it, 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 it feels so simplistic to say, but, um, you know, I think it's, it's Stephen Pressman, it's the, the war of art and the, the resistance and stuff like that. It's like, well, just either do it or don't do it, but, <laughs> but don't sit around and kick yourself over not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's doable. Like, you know, I have, I have, I have a career as a writer and I, got to that from, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't, um, I, I have great family support and I've been able to have a babysitter and I've been lucky in that way, but, you know, breaking down the doors of, of various and sundry publications and, and getting my words into them was that 500 worded words a day or that I could go to the grocery store or I could go to the coffee shop and, and write and, and making that choice. I mean, we have, we have those choices. Yeah. Well, and it's you also didn't decide on Monday that you were going to be a writer. And then on Tuesday, you were the editor of the Motherload on the New York Times. No, it it doesn't work work like that. that. And (laughs) and so we you know, but we expect things to work like that sometimes or we we have a hard time seeing the space in between like what you where you are and what you want. Right. You know what I used to do that was great was to look at someone whose career I wanted like an end goal, and then go and trace that person back through to like the very first things that I could find that they had written or done. Um, And then I would just, I would just sort of pretend, well, that because that's the trouble with being a writer, like, it's not like, it's not like being an ad executive, where there's sort of a clear, first, I'm a junior executive, and then I'm a medium I have no idea (laughs) (laughs) but I know that I I imagine there are promotions and things that that you try to get well being a writer doesn't it's not like that um so I would just be like okay I want to be Anna Quinlan boy do I want to be Anna Quinlan right um and and so she started out at like this small paper doing these small things so I'm going to find the equivalent and I'm going to I'm going to knock that off. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And then once I've done that, I'm going to keep doing that while I, you know, sort of throw myself desperately at the next step. Um, 
and you know that that it it worked actually i i think i needed i needed to sort of create these imaginary paths even though there are many paths i did better mm-hmm. with like this is this is my next step i will i will make this happen and some of them did not come to pass it's not like i haven't applied for jobs that i you are, you know, you're not talking to an opinion columnist for the Times. You're not talking to the children's book review editor of the Times, which is something else I applied for at a different point. Uh, you know, I've I tried a lot of things, but but a lot of things worked. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so that's a good. Um, I think that's a good place to kind of switch to your your current career move and switches and things that are going on. Right. So I I worked for the Times pretty much full time for a. Oh, for a long time. Um, and then I wrote this book, which I am actually super excited about. I feel like I've sort of flailed around talking about it. But I mean, it's a really fun, if 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 your day-to-day parenting life is not as much fun as you had hoped it would be, which I totally relate to, and mine is still not, <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff. Like I can reread this right now and go, oh, dang, if I, I got to get back on that. You know, I got to I gotta, I gotta do some more of that. I like that, but it also won't make you feel bad. Like that's the nice mm-hmm. thing. I don't. I. It was not gonna. It's not one of those. You should be present at every moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, I love the book. But in the process of writing the book, I stopped doing the daily work at the Times, and I found that I really liked that. Like that. Um, I'm really cut out for tying myself to a chair and working on something that I want to work on for long periods of time, um, oddly enough. And so once the book was done and turned in, I said, I started another book. And I don't, I don't have another nonfiction. This is actually my second nonfiction book. The first one was called Reading with Babies, Toddlers, and Twos. And that's what it's about. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, don't have, I don't have another nonfiction book in me right now. Uh, so, but I've always wanted to write fiction and I've done that before and put them carefully in drawers. So I decided I was going to, you know, I was, I was actually going to do it this time. I was going to finish a story that I'd been thinking about for a long time. I was going to learn how to do this right. And so that's what I've been working on. And I'm actually almost finished with a draft, which is a really exciting place that's to be. It's really exciting. Yeah. But unfortunately, a draft in which at the end, you know, two of the main characters have a totally different relationship than they did in the beginning. <laughs> Not because that was the plot evolution of the book, but because I changed things. And so, yeah, I got to like, go back and fix a lot of things. But it's going to be a draft, an actual, real, solid draft that is workable. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's just a draft. That's what happens, right? Yeah. As far as I can tell from my limited experience as well. I don't think anyone writes finished. Well, I, I have a very fantastic friend who... Um, is a very prolific romance writer. And while she does not write finished things by any means, I'm I'm dead certain that her books come out more finished than mine do. But that could partly be because she's on like book 30. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, what about book one? Yeah. Yeah. Book one, I don't, it was not so smooth. <laughs> we hope. I mean, you're also, one of you, I thought you were both writing fiction. Yes, we are. We are. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. It's a lot harder. It's different, right? It's like I can sit down and put words on a page, but I didn't really know how to tell a story the way I thought I did. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Well, and it is so different from writing nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So, like, Olivia and I both met in college and did, you know, student newspaper and that sort of thing. Um, But we were in college in the early 2000s when the whole newspaper world was changing completely and ended up both going in different directions after we graduated and not doing that so much. But I, you know, even, even writing journalism versus writing academic writing, I mean, I remember I had a professor who used to just tear his hair out every time I turned something in because it wasn't it, it was, I wrote it like it was a newspaper story <laughs> and, right. and I didn't write it like it was an academic journal. And I was like, but I, I already said that one time. I shouldn't have to say it four times. Um, and then my final assignment got to write like a feature story. And he was like, oh, I guess you can write after all. <laughs> it was just, it has to be the right kind of thing, right? Yeah. I used to write legal briefs. So I guess what you learn from any kind of this is to just keep you know, is to keep your butt in the chair. I was just, yeah. I was listening to Joanna Penn's podcast and she had this guy on and he was saying, you know, he was, he had been ghostwriting and he was like, I, 
frequently had no interest in it at all whatsoever. And I know people want to like be creative and I would just sit there and force myself. I'd be like, I'm just going to put some words on the page. Um, and he said, you could get, you could get somewhere that way. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta force it. You can't go take a walk every time it gets hard. Yeah. Well, and for me, what's, what's hard for me is that I don't really like being bad at stuff. And obviously at the beginning of anything, you're bad at it, but I've already gone through that in all the other stages of my life. Like I'm running teams instead of like doing the basic stuff in my job. And like, I just don't have to be bad for long periods of time at basically anything. Um, and so for me, it's just so hard because it's like, obviously, I mean, objectively, my first draft was terrible. My second draft is getting a bit better and so on, you know? And that's a difficult process. I did not think that I would do this, but I am working with a book coach. I would call her a freelance editor, but she likes book coach. So I'm going to go with book coach. Um, <laughs> I had, you know, I did NaNoWriMo mm -hmm. last year and I got really far. Uh, and then it just, it just didn't hang together. Like mm -hmm. it's actually this, it's largely the same story that I'm writing now, but I was like, I just... I can write, but there's structural stuff that I'm just not getting. And at the same time, I um, we were actually interviewing her for the podcast. And I was just looking at, you know, the things that she was saying about, like, how to put something together. And I was like, I, I need to learn that. And I can either learn it by spending 10 years doing it, mm -hmm. or I can actually learn it by having someone teach me. Um, yeah. And it's been it's been great. I, I've sort of had this feeling like, well, it won't be my story if I, but I was wrong. <laughs> I was totally wrong. This has been, I mean, it's, I just, I needed to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in every, like, you know, I was, like I was saying how every, every style of writing is different and it's, and it's like Olivia was saying, it's hard to be bad at something when you've learned it, you know, you've learned something yes. else and you're not bad at it anymore. And it's like, well, you've learned how to write a few different styles of things. You know, you've learned how to write legal briefs. You've learned how to write columns you've learned how to write news stories and you've learned how to write nonfiction books and it's like yes. I know how to write why am I having to learn this all over again but everything has its trick and everything has its has its key or it's it's I don't want to say it's formula but everything has its formula it kind of has its secret that once you learn it you see it and you can kind yeah. of unlock the structure or whatever um, but it's different for every and I'm sure it's different for every every genre of fiction too. Right. I just, I did not, for all the books I have read and loved, I never really spotted that the emotional story was what mattered, not the plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm interviewing myself now, <laughs> but yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't. And, you know, now that that's clear, although I, even now I don't really like to read books thinking that way because then I'm like, I don't know about you guys, but so... I loved magazines growing up, like just loved them. Like the best thing was to get a new magazine. And so I wanted to write for magazines. That's, you know, yeah. as I, and it kind of killed magazines once I started writing for them, because mm. then I would be, it started to be like, well, I could have written that. Oh, why didn't I write that? I could have totally. <laughs> and then it's like, they weren't fun anymore. And sometimes I'm like, am I going to kill books? This is really a bad idea. <laughs> well, luckily there's so many different <laughs> types of books there's so many different books presumably I will. yeah oh but I got that when I was like in when I'm actually drafting I can't really read any fiction or it has to be just like so completely outside what I'm writing that it doesn't relate in any way because otherwise I'm like oh that's something I could use or oh I don't think that's very good or you know whatever and it just turns into yeah as you say something that's not very fun but luckily so far at least that gets turned off when I'm not doing the like full-on drafting part well, I, I need to do some dissection where like I really read something and look at how somebody put it together. But if I'm enjoying reading something, I don't want to dissect. Yeah, it. yeah. And I'll, I'll do that. I'll dissect something I've already read. Well, or I'll start to do that and then I get into the story and quit. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I really need to dissect some endings because I'm I'm on my ending. So I need to somehow like there's just those moments when you're like, well, OK, so now the final plot thing has happened. How would the characters react to that? Yeah. <laughs> how would I convey how they react? Like, I'm, I'm feeling like I know what's happening and I know sort of broadly, but the sort of immediate, I don't know, would their, would their eyebrows go up? Would they? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's not like with, 
like straight news where you're like, well, I've run out of facts. So that's the end. Right. Or, I'm out of inches. Yeah. So we're done. That's literally how I wrote my first and second yeah. draft. So thanks, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for the tip. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So I know um, you probably have things that you need to do. And kind of just from a day-to-day kind of craft perspective, what does your day usually look like? Like what is, how do you structure um, your writing? We've talked, uh, we talked with Jess about the stickering and how that works and how we try to get that sticker Right. You know, that's what we never talked about. You guys are a podcast about friendship and writing. And, and you just talked to like my one of my two best writing friends. And we didn't even um, I you know, we never talked. This is we never talked about like how writers support each other and how like when you your friends start to succeed, it helps you succeed. And anyway, that's that's been a huge piece of my life was everybody sort of rising up and succeeding together in this really kind of amazing and, and cool way. Anyway, um, what does my writing day look like? So four out of five days look like I really, I have a structure and I, it took me a long time to find it and I really try to like stick to it, which is that I get up early and I do the, I, you know, I, do a little exercise and I do my kid things and I do, we have a farm and I do the farm work and I get the kids, I drive them to school because there's not a bus. Uh, and I'm usually home by eight 15 and then I stagger around either dealing with debris or making coffee. And at eight 30, I sit down and then, and sometimes they sit down even faster. It kind of depends, but until, and I tell myself how much time I have either until 10 or until 11 or until noon, I, write my fiction. I work on the writing. And that is all I do. And actually at night before I shut down my computer, I turn off the Wi-Fi. Yes. This is a new thing. Smart. I have yeah. s- since you sent that email and talked about it on the podcast about why is the default on our computers on? Like why is Wi-Fi on? I've been doing the same thing and it is huge. It really is because then you have to like you sit down and when you kind of sort of dr- start dr- I can't tell you how many times I'll be writing and all of a sudden, I'll be like, why am I texting people? <laughs> <laughs> I was just writing, and now I am texting. Um, but if you have to turn something on, for me, that's enough. Like, I don't need the freedom program or whatever. Just to have to go and sort of make that conscious move causes me to go, and that's really not how you were going to spend this time. Um, and it becomes like sort of a point of honor. not. To, and I put my phone in the other room. So, uh, so I do that until whichever time I have. Um, and then I have my book coming out. So the rest of my time right now is, is spent working, you know, working on getting ready to, to do that launch. So working on excerpts or working on selling excerpts or, um, being on podcast, which is totally a pleasure. It's not like, I don't think I could write for much longer than I think, you know, later when I'm only writing a book, maybe I'll do that chunk and then like do something else in the middle and then go back to it. But my kid, you know, I, I've got these kids and they're out of school depending on the day at either two or three. And I am the only, um, I have to go pick them up and do things with, I have to <laughs> take them places. So, so, I try to be happy about that. I actually am pretty happy about that because they're, they're getting older and they're not going to be around as much. But generally speaking, I stop that work at two or three deal with whatever kid thing is sort of immediately on my plate. And then depending on the day, um, I might, I'll go back to work, but it'll all be at that point. It's all like what I call launch stuff or podcast stuff or PR stuff, or, you know, that's sort of just maintaining my connection to the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's sometimes I wonder what I am doing during those hours and yet I'm doing something and it isn't just responding to email. And I don't know, that's, um, so anyway, it's a it's a pretty set structure. Now today I got screwed up because my kids had a dentist point. <laughs> but and so at the, the end of all that, it was noon, and I was like, I haven't done any actual writing yet. Um, and I it was really hard to turn everything off at that point. And I, I only managed to get a little bit of writing in. And I I will find another block later today that because I've got I've got self imposed deadlines to meet, which are important. But you know, if yeah. you stop once you decide your own deadlines aren't important, then I don't know. For for me, at least, then I, it's just uh, I'm just sunk. I let that not be the number one priority. Then I just it'd be awful. Cats marrying dogs. You know. <laughs> yeah, and then it you know it, it becomes a habit, right? And right, it's it's it is really easy to. It's like we um 
we talked with um, a friend of Olivia's on our podcast a while ago, Ashley Maynor, and she's um, she's actually a document a documentary filmmaker and a librarian. But she talked about how she just touches her work every day, and it's kind of like what Jess talks about how she just opens the document. Yes, I want to do this. I want to finish this. That is what I want, and you know, to allow sort of like little or smaller immediate wants to get in the way. I, the only person who's going to be mad about that is me. So I, I got to come through for myself. Yeah. Such a good pep talk. I'm so glad that you did yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We got to, we got to, other people will eat you, you know? Yeah. Your mm. kids, especially if you have those, they will eat you. <laughs> they will gobble you up and, and chew you and, and spit you out. And there you will be unless yeah. you, unless you do your, unless you do, unless you do your own thing. Yeah. Too. And if you do, They'll, they'll respect you all the more for it. We would like to go talk more about the friendship aspects and the, you know, writing partners and... Yeah, we never got to it. And that has been for both of us. And with this book, the way that Jess has supported me launching mine because she launched her book, you know, it's like I was the editor for the Times first and then she wrote for me and then she got the book thing first and then she did all that. Like it's, yeah, we've we've really been... We've been good together. It's a good partnership. I think that's so important. That's one of my favorite things about your podcast is just listening to the two of you together and you, you're both so supportive of each other, even if it means that maybe um, I think you talked about one of you getting the agent that you both have first and it being like, but I wanted that yeah, agent. I think, and it's like, yeah, we both had our jealous moments. I mean, that you know, you can't not. But but that's okay. Like you have to just go, yeah, I want that too. Yeah. Well, and two, and that and that's really important is that there is a two. Right. There is enough behind. There really is. You know, you succeed together. People just people just do. So, you know, one of you might get this first book published and the other one might not. And that'll be okay because when the other one's ready, the one will have, you know, and it's just like the, Jess and I are like a decade plus into this. And, you know, so the fact that she's had to pull me along and I've had to pull her along at, at various stages, it's all evened out. And we're not solo and you know, we've got other friends that are sort of in and part of this too. And you can't do it without your community. Like you really need those lifts and that it, it's really important. I think it's important to have like one or two people who really know you and kind of get that daily ups and downs that you still can kind of check back in with. I think I feel bad that we're taking more of your time. So I feel like, I don't know, we should probably wrap up. All right. Well, we could clearly talk for hours, but you're right. <laughs> I I have another like 45 minutes here that I could, I, I'm going to dedicate to actually writing because I'm clearly not going to move the email train forwards today. So um, <laughs> just giving it up. I don't care. <laughs> If it's important, they'll email you again. They totally will. Yeah. Yeah. We really appreciate it. And we're such big fans. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rinkaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Or not, that's not even the word I want, so I'm glad we're off the record. But anyway, it's just, yeah. <laughs>